Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time talking for about. Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're joining us here. Thanks for sticking around after a great uh, Motor Mouth show. Glad to have you with us. It's another live Mortgage Matters show coming at you for two hours. And there's so much to talk about. Yeah. I got to get... I gotta <coughs> just get getting plugged in here. Getting, yeah, yeah. getting plugged in, getting the mics adjusted, getting the... Just getting in the the mood here to start talking chair at the right height yeah they switched chairs on me a few weeks back and i'm not sure that i like this one that's because king harris sits there on the morning and apparently he injured his foot and he has to be higher up or something something happened so this is just a taller chair just a taller it's got a taller back but it's not necessarily more comfortable that's yeah and that's my big gripe with it (laughs) Well, I'll see whether or not we can get you a different chair in the break if you want. Just something a little more comfortable, a little more cushion. It feels okay. like someone bigger than me has been sitting in this chair for about five years. Yeah. Probably. It's kind of, it's lost its spring. Yeah. Well, but hey, I'm just being picky, you know, I just, first, I, I show up here for problems. a couple hours a week. Yeah. It's not, I'm not the top priority. I get it. <laughs> I get it. No, no, no. It's okay. We'll get you a chair. I'm sure you will be after today. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, this are. is the uh, the first Saturday for the month of May. It's actually uh, the second Saturday. Well, for the month of May. I, it's because you didn't <laughs> let me finish my sentence after the jobs report. So that's the big day. That's that's the, right. Why do they? Yeah, they're supposed to have the jobs report the first Saturday of every. Oh, first. Well, first Friday. First Friday. The first was a Friday. Yeah, but that's too soon. That just doesn't. Yeah, they won't do it then. You have to have. It. It's really the first Friday if it's not the first day. All right. <laughs> or if there's not bad weather uh, or in the past. what well, Also, government shutdowns have delayed it. Remember that? Yeah. Bureau of Labor and Statistics just couldn't get together because the debt ceiling was reached. But not this time. This time it's uh, it was out. So we have that to talk about today. That's always. Uh, so this is the show that we just always just me and you, you know, guests coming in. We'll be relying heavily on phone calls. I thought I heard you say there wasn't a lot of phone calls this morning already. Yeah, I think it's because Mother's Day is tomorrow. People are out there doing oh, the shopping. Yeah. yeah, let's not forget about that. I've not. Mm-mm. I've not forgotten You better about not Mother's forget Day. about it over there either, Dan. <laughs> I've been told what I'm doing, so I don't. <laughs> oh, good. I, I actually can forget about it. What I don't are have you to doing? think about it. We're having everyone over for breakfast tomorrow. Yeah. Oh. It's yeah. Brothers, yeah, Mother's Day, and then a lot of the high schools have their proms this weekend. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty busy for a lot of people. This morning, my daughter told uh, my wife and I, she said, I'm making you breakfast in bed tomorrow. Ooh, is that good? And so I said, you're... How old is she? She's uh, six, she's seven? probably not listening. Um, is she six? 
and it's yeah. not it's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> she even has trouble just bringing it in. Yeah. So the, like the OJ like spills in on you know the eggs and if, Some... you've, if you've never had scrambled eggs cooked um, and then doused with orange juice, you're you've missing not out. lived. Yeah. And so yeah, I said, oh, you really love breakfast in bed to her, you know, and she said, I do. I think it's the best. Um, yeah, and we've never made breakfast in bed for her. It's just a, it, this happens. <laughs> Sounds really nice. Father's Day, Mother's yeah. Day. Sounds like you're going to be up in the kitchen early tomorrow morning. Indeed. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to, I'm going to help out. I don't know that we're going to serve it in bed, but yeah. And I, and I already bought the little trinket thing I was supposed to buy. So I'm awesome. I'm square. Cool. Cool. Ready for it. You're Good having deal. everyone over? My mom's in town. My in-laws live very nearby, so we get to wow. We get to come together tomorrow morning. Wow! All the moms at one time. Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Very nice. Huh. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Uh, we'd all just have to admit that this world is only what it is because of moms. Otherwise, well, none of us would be sitting here. <laughs> That's for sure. Very true. I was thinking of it way less scientifically. <laughs> yeah. And just just more about all that nurturing yeah. and loving and supporting yeah. they do. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. just your practical guy. <laughs> he went straight to science. Yeah. There it is. Indeed. Yeah. No, Quite they're, they're awesome. Yeah. 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 I, I, my mom doesn't listen to the show very often, so it's. I, I won't even waste time wishing her a happy Mother's Day. I'll call her tomorrow, though. Um, gosh, what else? I mean, what's going on, Dan? You know, That's it, huh? you know what I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I know, indeed. Um, hey, well, I got a little jumping-off point here for you that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Back when we really first got Mortgage Matters going um, years ago, one of the main reasons that we did so was just because the the credit market was so frozen down and it was really unclear what the future would be going forward in the mortgage world. I mean, if you recall, loan products were plentiful, right? I mean, it was almost sure. like... They had a loan solution for about every problem you had. You know, no income, we got one of those. Um, and it, it, when it started out, there was always just one issue. If everything else was good, but you're missing your income, you were fine. If everything was good, but you, your credit was, um, you know, you didn't have a score, so they could figure out some workaround. All these different kind of things, but um, all in all, what happened was there was too many lenders with a total lack of regulation, um, just sort of running amok with any old loan program they could dream up. And then there was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that were sort of just along for the ride and um, ended up losing gobs and gobs and gobs of money. And I think really, I mean, yeah, we could say that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they dumbed their standards down a little bit. Uh, mainly they got a little loosey-goosey with just not forcing people to verify things that were claimed to be true. And then also, in the end, the appraisal requirements got dumbed down a little bit too. But uh, anyway, 
what happened, and, and this right about the time we started the show, is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were private enterprises. Just, I mean, right? Full-blown private business. It wasn't at all government-related. And today there's a whole generation of people that just believe that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are a government utility, and they might be you know, believing so for good reason. But the reality is, is that uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are making 95% of the loans in the U.S. today. Um, and those agencies, so they're, the entire health of our housing industry um, and arguably the greater economy depends on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, and they're, they've been in conservatorship now. I think, what was it, September of 08? that sound right? It sounds about right, yeah. Somewhere around then, um, the government essentially had to step in and take over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Doesn't conservatorship, I mean, that reminds me of like what happens when you're bankrupt, right? Where somebody else sort of has to take running you, your finances. Yeah, you you screwed it all up, and you're so sideways that, and the ramifications are big enough that now somebody else is going to step in here and do what you clearly could not. Mm -hmm. um, so there you go. That's been the state of this thing for a good long while, and you know, I it's gonna. I think after the election, once we figure out who the new president is, is where I think they're going to start to try to figure out how to put some sort of solution back together on this. There was an opinion poll last week that asked people, uh, what would you like to see with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? And um, the majority of people um, think it's just fine. They have no real problem with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And if anything, would like to see them uh, returned to private industry. Is that surprising to you? Get the government back out of the Who was mix. pulled in that? Just Joe Consumer hmm. and lots of them. And most of them said if if they were if they were um, proven to be capitalized, that they could be turned out and, and left back again under the new regulatory framework to operate, um, obviously with a little bit shorter leash, but just just taken out of conservatorship. Is it surprising to me? Probably not. I think the average consumer doesn't have an alternative option, but they just know that as a taxpaying citizen, they don't want to be staked in that anymore. Sure. So I think the results of that poll makes sense to me. Um, you know, I, I really, I, I think it's a complex issue that I don't think very many people that I personally wouldn't put a lot of, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take their opinion um, very seriously. You know, I, I think it's it's interesting to hear what the average person has to think, but it's a very complex matter that requires some industry experts to help figure out what the right solution is. Fannie and Freddie currently guarantee a little more than half of all U.S. mortgages and are together, their worth is roughly $5 trillion, okay? The mortgage total. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of what they're backing. And so it's interesting timing, you know, and I'm sure it was done on purpose, but here you go. Um, the FHFA, which is the Federal Housing Finance Agency, just released the results of the annual stress test. Now, you remember the stress test, right? This is like the new thing under Basil. They go into these financial institutions and sort of create a situation theoretically, right, where the stock market plunges in half or 
unemployment hits 10% or uh, interest rates go up or something. These various things happen to the business and you're, you're modeling whether or not the company has the asset base it takes to survive that, right? So then make sure that you're not too extended in one way or another. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, though, pretty straightforward, right? They guarantee home loans. Mm-hmm. So it's not hard to model what it would take um, you know, to, to find out whether or not these companies are now solvent. So check this out. Here's the results for Fannie and Freddie stress tests. Um, Fannie Mae. Um, okay, so first and foremost, the two companies would need $157.3 billion in capital. That's a big number, yeah? Yeah. Hard to find much context in it. Um, right out of the gate, that number sounds too low? I feel like it sounds too low. I mean, I remember Fannie. Yeah, because you, you used the M word, so that sounds too low. No, no, billion. Oh, billion, okay. 157 billion. The number sounds low, and I feel like it sounds low to me because I recall those two agencies got like $100 billion in, in money <sighs> or something, right? I mean, they got a ton of money. So check this it out. It was more than that. Cause it, yeah, it was a I lot. I remember more than it that. was like 115 billion dollars. They repaid some 300 something billion dollars. Just one of the agencies. I think combined, it was a half a trillion dollars that they received. Fannie Mae today, 3.25 trillion in assets. Freddie Mac, 1.95 trillion. It's 5.2 trillion combined. Trillion is we're talking some pretty big numbers here. Um, and basically, they need capitalization rate of three to four percent of those assets. Um, bottom line is, sounds like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are pretty well capitalized right now and doing pretty darn good. Um, and so, let's look, um, take a little look in at the first quarter. Just based on the first quarter profits for this year, um, Fannie Mae had a pretty good first quarter. They paid the Treasury Department $1.8 billion after reporting a net income of $1.9 billion for the first quarter. You want to go back out and pull the rest of those Americans right now? <laughs> in a quarter, this, this enterprise that is, yes, it's under conservatorship, uh, it, it net profited, right? Track these uh, these words here, it net profited $1.9 billion and then handed over $1.8 billion to the treasury. Um, that's huge. How's that for a return on investment? By the way, all the money that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was ever given was already paid back. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those, those, those debts are paid now, but the way that it happened um, Fannie and Freddie are required to pay the Treasury all profits above a minimum net worth under the terms um, when they were essentially seized by regulators. So um, this money counts on U.S. investment, not as repayment for the aid, but this is sort of like preferred stock in the companies. That's pretty epic. I mean, um, and they're in that agreement when the government took them over. There was no mechanism written in there that would that would force or require at some stage, at some point in the game, at some level of health, at some great stress test reading, at some unbelievable um, holding of capital or assets backed. 
There was never an exit strategy written in. So what are you going to do? Again, these companies are are currently responsible for over 90% of the the origination volume of loans in the country. That's it's pretty wild. Um so you think uh going into this presidential election season here that we're about to get into full swing, you think this is going to end up talked about? Probably. I'm it's I'm such sure. a major source of money. Well, it's what's been driving it, this housing issue, crisis, whatever you want to call it, has been driving economic policy for the last 10 years. Well, don't you so think it's, it's a, going to be talked it's about? It's a pretty good look, too, on how your politics are in terms. I mean, I, we realize how party lines vote, but how are your politics in terms of and what, what do you intend to do in terms of um, government involvement? And but also the the capital, because it's a huge revenue stream. I mean, there's no there's no debating that. Um, and to take Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, they're going to continue to be paying the treasury. I think at a minimum, if these companies are ever restored to private enterprise, the the sort of settlement agreement for handing back over the reins is going to be a continued um, payment to the treasury for the the very fact basically that basically for alive insurance, today. right? Right. Yeah. I mean, kind of. Because, yeah, that was people ask this question a lot in terms of home loans. Why is the FHA interest rate lower than the conventional interest rate today? That's easy one. The FHA interest rate is lower because the debt is actually fully insured. Insured has a different set of uh, legal ramifications or definitions than guaranteed, right? Mm-hmm. These these government loans now made by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are merely guaranteed. But what's the difference now? I mean, we took we fully insured them, <laughs> didn't we? Pretty much. Yeah, they they hit the skids hard. They were out of money. They couldn't make the trades. The securities were going belly up. They didn't have enough money to stay solvent long enough to. Um, modify loans to figure out how to do foreclosures they didn't have the resources it took to even um unwind of all these things let alone the major black eye that um, international investors had having bought u.s-based mortgage-backed securities from a government and sponsored a government sponsored enterprise right so the investment community around the world was awfully upset with the united states government as fannie mae and freddie mac faced imminent failure um and so we step in and fix those guys up. Uh, anyway, it'll be really interesting to see it all unfold. This just seemed like a real good week to talk about it, learning about their quarter one profits, learning about, um, again, an update on the market share that they hold, learning about the money paid to the treasury and what percentage it is of actual net profit is pretty unbelievable. Um, and again, public sentiment is generally they would like to see these companies be restored back to private enterprise, provided that they're capitalized enough now to not need help next time. Which is interesting that just keeping them around is is a change from the conversation that's evolved over the last several years. There was right. a, there was a period of just time to break them up. Yeah, just to. Uh, dissolve Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And that was the talk immediately there, upon the bailout. There are print, plenty of legislators today that still are arguing that point. 
would love to just have them broke up. And I'll tell you what, I, I read a handful of different pieces about this topic right now, too. And you want to know what the one common thread was that I saw everywhere? Um, if Fanny and Freddie were kicked all the way back over to private sector right now, the business model for a full-blown private company to be doing what they're doing requires a higher rate of interest than what they're they're needing today. In other words, because of the government involvement and the not only the the backing of these companies, but also you got to remember that these guys are reinvesting profits right now, right? When mortgage-backed securities are being so, we got rid of the quantitative easing where the government was buying mortgage-backed securities every day, right? Kind of. <laughs> As those things are paying off, that money comes back in. It's still billions and billions of dollars. And every month, they're spending a couple billion dollars on reinvesting in new mortgage-backed securities. So you you have a pretty good idea now of what's going on in the home loan market by what those securities are selling for that um, in addition to the new stuff just the reinvestment of that stuff, it, it, it helps keep these interest rates really low. And if it was full-blown private enterprise without any government involvement, the rates are going to be higher. And we talked about that last week. What happens to the, what happens to this housing market if interest rates go to 6%? We've already seen some evidence that it's going to slow down pretty dramatically. Yeah. I mean, it, Last year, well, I can't say last year anymore because it was more than um, man, about 18 months ago. Almost two, almost years, two ago. years ago. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say it was like uh, 16, 18, doing the math. Yeah, almost two years ago now where we saw interest rates really go. I'm going to say just to sort of smooth out the ultimate low and the ultimate high. Let's call it from three and a half to four and a half. That's really about what happened. Um, and since then, we've eased back down to... Yeah, you know, a stage right now, let's call it, it's probably averaged three and seven eighths since that big jump. But what a wet blanket, though, huh? You couldn't throw a rock without hitting somebody that was trying to buy a house. And and you knew it's true um, because everybody you know was buying houses, right? Oh, yeah. All the, and, and it's part our demographic and obviously what we do for a living, but all the friends in the peer group were all house house hungry. Everyone had home buying fever. Um, so we definitely saw that cool off quite a bit when interest rates went up like they did. Um, and our government currently, the, the feds agree that we're not quite ready for that yet. That's why these rates are still as low as they are guys. It's nine 27 right now. So we're going to go ahead and, um, we're going to take a commercial break here. I do want to remind you if you have questions or comments, we, we do want you to view this as a, a resource, um, you know, call in, let us know what you're thinking, maybe a reaction to some of the things that we talk about, a question about a home loan or um, some investment strategy, maybe. We'd love to hear from you. It's 543-8830. We'll be back after this short break with more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Hi, this is Jason Grody at Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. We recently made the jump to direct lender. That's right. Now we can do your loan in-house, but we still broker too. We choose based on getting the best loan terms for you. We don't know what to call it yet, but you'll call it amazing. Refi or refinance a home. Just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. Central Coast. 
Central Coast Lending. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. What a state of generosity, look what my agent got for me, just by switching to State Farm. A few hundred unexpected bucks, I couldn't ask for more, but now I've got to figure out what I should use it for. A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical, like a pet baboon with one robotic arm. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you could save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's 930. Um, man, I can't believe we dusted a half an hour here talking about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, really. But, um, you know, during the break, you you bring up something I, I well, can't help but believe is is just crazy interesting to me. Yeah, along the, you know, we're kind of on this topic of government involvement in mortgage and real estate. I think before we go there, just really quickly, one last point about the Fannie Mae thing, Fannie and Freddie thing is because of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, because of their existence is the reason we have long-term fixed rate mortgages. Um, prior to their existence, it was all bank, bank loan offerings and, and banks never really had that. They never offered that 30-year fixed loan. They were looking to match mortgage duration with the average duration of deposits, and those are typically a lot shorter. So you saw a lot of adjustable rate mortgages. You saw balloon mortgages, things like that. Fixed rate mortgages came along with Fannie Mae um, in the 30s and really provided some long-term stability and payment stability for families to know what their housing debt was going to be or their, their housing liability on a monthly basis was going to be until they owned that home outright. And so it's interesting that the conversation there's kind of turned now to what's the government role going to be in those entities rather than what are whether those entities should be around at all. Right. Um, we'll see how that conversation develops, like you said, as we get more into a presidential um, cycle here, because I do think that will be a topic. <clears throat> but along those lines of government involvement in this industry, 
Um, I saw an article in this morning's Tribune about protests that are occurring in San Francisco. You know, we've heard a lot about some anecdotal stories about San Francisco real estate and how a well-priced home in San Francisco is going for, um, you know, they're, they're usually getting offers on the first weekend, multiple offers, I mean, upwards of 20 offers, well over ask price. Um, and it's a very, very competitive market. And a lot of the reasons that have been cited are that there's <clears throat> this younger technology um, person, you know, per- someone that's employed in either Silicon Valley or some dot-com, dot-com companies that are based in the city of San Francisco. And they're coming in and they're buying in the typically more affordable neighborhoods like the Mission District or um, Richmond, you know, some of these areas of, of San Francisco that that have long been viewed as more affordable and these these wealthy young folks are coming in and they are buying these properties they're um you know giving sums of money to kick people out of buildings or the existing landlords are kicking people out um by paying buying out their contracts or whatever their their rental agreements and then they're rehabbing these properties and making them very expensive to afford whether to rent or to buy and it and and so the average person who wants to live in San Francisco is finding it very difficult to do so anymore um, because the big money's pushing them out. And so these rallies are occurring, these protests to the government that that they the government needs to do something to create housing affordability in the city of San Francisco. And the question that immediately comes to my mind is what should the government's role be in providing affordable housing? One of the protesters was um, cited as saying, you know, that the government should be looking at at putting some kind of moratorium on building these new um, high-rise condominiums that are unaffordable for the folks that are, are protesting. What a complex issue. Um, I found myself going through a variety of emotions just hearing you give that quick flyby. Um, and it's hard for me to say. First of all, to me, it's like a moratorium sounds like a terrible idea on account of you're going to be um, creating yet more demand, which is only going to drive up the cost of what's already there. Um, but interestingly enough, I, I, and bear with me for a second here, is I'm gonna, I want to tell you about a bar graph that I'm looking at. And it has to do with the Mission District in San Francisco. Um, which is really one of the kind of the um, poster child areas of where this gentrification is happening. Um, this is particularly interesting. Talk about income um, in income by race at different periods in the Mission District. 1990 income, and this is just comparing white and Hispanic. The Mission District has, um, that's kind of like the the primary um, races that are there. We've got 1990, $27,489 for Hispanic as compared to $25,370 for white. I read that correctly. The Hispanic income was more in that decade than was the white in that district, okay? That was the last decade that that was so. Um, So much so that today, the 
income in that district is pushing $100,000 for the white population and $60,000 for the Hispanic population. If you, you know, and obviously that's 2012 data. So we have the 90, 2000, 2010, um, 2012. So what you can see here is that the, the mix of who's making up the population and the change in their income level as who's taking over these neighborhoods are having an impact to, let's, let's say the natives. Okay. What do you do about that? What do you and whose responsibility is it to do something about that? Um, I I would argue here that that you're you're biting onto what is a really complex and charged issue because you're going to easily be able to say there's a group that needs protection that are being displaced at the hands of others um, based on greed and profit, and is that the for many people, they're going to say that that is the place of the government, right? Take care, give the voice to the the population that needs you the most because they're being taken advantage of, um, especially when it's greed-driven. The flip side of the coin here is going to be um, our country is driven by private enterprise, at least it used to be. And in doing so, in making profits and running successful businesses and having areas transform from one thing to another as it just happens in a, in a capitalist economy, opportunities, sure, some opportunities change, fade away, or even get forced out while other opportunities are introduced and prevail, um, and things just change. And it's not the place of the government to step in and prevent people from being able to make profit, um, those new opportunities for all those people that that live in there. And, you know, what's tough, and, and this is where it becomes such a, a tricky little issue in terms of the housing part of it is... Um, this is one of these issues that's not just decided only by math or only by heart. Um, and those two things, those are pretty hard to figure out how to address. But the reality of it is, is that um, these these things are, it's, it's happening and it's not just happening in San Francisco. That's an easy, um, it's an easy place to take a look at because it's it's kind of extreme. Um, I was looking at another graph. I know these are not very exciting to talk about, but this other graph showed that, um, you know, the value of real estate in that district in 1970 was $30,000 and today is pushing a million bucks. I think, yeah. And that, and that to me is, is the more important graph. There is the, really the change in the value of that real estate. Um, you know, I, I can remember being younger and, and that I even lived in San Francisco at about oh, eight, nine years ago. And this was maybe just starting. It was shortly after the ballpark moved to that, um, that South end of town. And some of those new high rises right around the ballpark started to develop. And so then you have to the North of the mission, you have the financial district, which is all, you know, that's where money was born. Um, and then you have this ballpark that's kind of on the other end and in between's the mission. And so now it's starting to get squeezed. Um, and, and you have this very important issue of pro of property rights, 
right? Sure. You've got these folks who own property or are trying to acquire property and it's got a value today and they have a desire to do something to improve that property value, whether it's rehabbing the existing property, tearing down what's existing and building new. And that's well within their rights to do that. Do we set a dangerous precedent by stopping them or somehow, um, you know, some government imposed moratorium on building? I don't know that that's the right thing because that really, as as a property owner myself, not in San Francisco, but here, I don't like the idea of that. I don't like the idea of, of the government being able to tell me exactly well, what careful I can do and can't do. Because the value of real estate in the U.S. as compared to any other country... You know why real estate is so valuable here? Yeah, the weather and all that kind of thing. You know what it is? It's the protection of the property rights of people that own the property. The bundle of rights that you have with your property. You know, there's not there are many other places in the in the world where sure you might own property, but the government can come seize it. Um with no reason or even process or, um, you know, d any rate point being that bundle of rights that comes along with being a property owner in the United States is, is based be almost exclusively because we believe in those rights. So purely is why we're all so comfortable spending a million dollars for something like this. Um, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, this other article, by the way, if you guys want to check this out, um, look up, do a Google search for um, gentrification San Francisco. And the San Francisco Chronicle has written, a. there's a movie on this. There's some a great write-up on it about um, the changing mission. And... Um, it's packed. I, I scrolled into one of the next graphs here. Since so you said added the ballpark, do you remember when that was? I want to say about twelve years ago or so. I'm not exactly sure. Interestingly enough, um, the San Francisco Police Department has created a little um, pictorial here to sort of show you what's happened since and the time frame they picked. Because in my mind, I thought that's about the same time frame as the ballpark. They looked at 03 to the present day, um, crime in the neighborhood, assault, drugs, burglary, prostitution, robbery, sexual offenses, and vandalism, all of which have steadily declined. Which so, makes sense. I mean, that makes sense if you've got a this changing population, particularly with the income demographics changing. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But what you have here is this issue of a place for the workforce. You know, this is a big issue everywhere. It's a big issue here. Um, the, the national numbers say that half of people can't afford homes in the cities in which they live when we're talking about all these major metropolitan areas. And San, San Luis Obispo is not a major metropolitan area, and we it's more extreme here. It's like a third of the population can afford to live here, um, can afford to own a home here. So there's two big issues that I see. I, I don't like the idea of, of the you know government making... I don't know, somehow controlling or having some influence over private property rights. That, to me, is a, a scary precedent. But there are two big issues when we're talking about this housing affordability issue. One is the price of real estate, and the second is the financing cost of real estate. Those are your two big 
opportunities to create affordability without um, without affecting property rights. Because people, like you said, they have this right to own this real estate with these these rights, and they part of their rights are to do what they want with it and make profits and that. So, is there something the government can do to incentivize the the property owner? to make affordable units? Can they somehow change the planning codes or, or things like that to make that a profitable endeavor? Because that's really what drives most decision decisions in, um, in people is incentives, right? We're driven by incentives. If I do this, what's the, you know, you, you either, there's consequences and there's rewards for decisions and what, how can you incentivize creating affordability or, or profitability in building affordable units. If you can do that, great. That's one opportunity. The other thing that this really opens up, which is a, kind of a tie back into our Fannie Mae discussion earlier, is are there different loan terms? Are there different loan opportunities that we can create to create affordability, but maybe not affect the value of the of the home that's in that that someone's trying to buy and make it affordable for them. Can we make a 40 or 50 year loan term that would create some affordability, but still preserve the value of that real estate? Um, it's a complex it issue. It really comes down to those two things for me. I think this whole idea of uh, you know private property, and we're just gonna say you can't do what you wanna do right now because these other people want to be able to live there. Well, I wanna live you know, in a oceanfront home in in Malibu, but that's I can't do that. So what? Should I just go lobby the government and say, you know what? There's not enough places for me to live in this town. I don't know. If yeah. that's that's where we should be going with this. No, and I I keep thinking that too. I feel like it's dangerous to just take a side because even as I almost muster a little courage to want to make a statement about how I feel about it, I can think of some extremes where it it doesn't add up in the end. Um, for example, okay. Let's take um, like you. It's funny that you brought up um, the beach. I was thinking the Palisades. Is it the government's responsibility to put affordable housing in the Palisades? <laughs> um, I kind of want to argue not, but sometimes you need to take things to an extreme to make an example out of it. What happens when an entire city? has no more affordable housing and the government doesn't take care to protect, preserve and add new affordable housing. And you know, you could be a big tough guy and say, "Hey, well, if you can't afford to be there, then that's, you know, nature's way of having you move." Um that's not necessarily uh a great thing. Much of the culture of these different cities and places that we love are based on the fact that they have um, multi-generational established businesses, all these things where uh, that's responsible for the health. It's not just simply chasing people out and flipping it for another a big buck. So um, you fully risk degrading the entire sense of place and i mean and couldn't one argue that that's kind of already happening in california as we just drive people away from the water right get away from the ocean and it gets cheaper and we sort of are just going down that path naturally anyway as things just you know get more unaffordable uh in the more desirable places we have a couple of callers waiting i 
kind of figured this might get the phones ringing. If you want to share a comment or ask a question, you can call in at 543-8830. We'll start with Bob in Arroyo Grande. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, gentlemen. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks. <clears throat> um, I'm going I'm to take the perspective of the hard guy. <laughs> okay. I think our, our system of uh, freedoms are based very intrinsically on um, the capitalist concept that resources are allowed to um, elevate or to depreciate to their highest value in the in the economy. And so you say, okay, well, um, the um, shoreline properties, I mean, take Cayucas, for example, those properties are going to sell for more than Tascadero. Yep. And that's because there is only so many uh, ocean view and ocean front lots. So should we make the um, San Luis or the uh, Cayucas properties, make them be sold by, by government edict for the same price as uh, Tascadero? No, that's, that's not in line with our freedom concepts, our property right concepts, our capitalism concepts. When you, when you talk about people being greedy and making money out of it, remember that every one of those transactions had to have two sides. They had to have one side that said, I'm willing to pay you $500,000 for this piece of property or whatever the number is. And somebody on the other side said, well, and I'm willing, I'm willing to accept that move to a different place to live when you give me $500,000. So it's not about greed. It's about a mutual, um, a mutual value of what that particular property is worth. Sure. The last point I want to make is, is that to a large degree, government has a huge impact on, on the, um, housing prices. You, and I've heard this on many different shows, and you guys have said it before on your show, too. It says, like, well, you can't hardly draw a permit to build a house without having $10,000 into it or $50,000 into yep. it. It's just a permit process so expensive. city of San Luis Obispo is trying to go through it. I don't know where they are in the process. They're trying to jam through a housing inspection bill. Well, so they're going to ground, they're going to grind through some bill, some edict that says that all rental properties have to be inspected, what's going to happen? The price of all that is going to be attacked onto the cost of the rent. Yep. So government does a lot of things by limiting where people can build and limiting how, what they can build and trying to tell everybody what to do. They limit the market and cause it to be more expensive. Yep. All good so points. So it's not, it's not a simple equation of just let everybody do what they want, because there has to be a certain amount of planning and, and organization to the process of a growing city. But also you have to be very careful that the cities aren't driving the prices up with all the rules and regulations. Sure. Bob, thanks anyway, so much for your phone call. Have... I appreciate your opinions. Uh, we have another phone call. Uh, Amy's calling from Bradley. Good morning, Amy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. He made half of my argument for me. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping half... you were the other side. <laughs> Yeah, well, I agree with him. And the other half is is the bottom end wages should rise up, too. If you can't find a maid or a, a low-wage earner person to do your whatever menial job, you're going to have to pay them more. Yep. And isn't that why they're raising their minimum wage up there? And yeah, the, minim notes the minimum wage in San Francisco is $15 an hour. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. $15 an hour isn't going to go very far in 
a million They're dollar real estate. North County or South County or some smaller place. Right. Away farther. You know, my nephew is putting himself through college in Switzerland. He's in the money capital of the world. Everybody, he says he never sees his roommates because they're all working their behinds off all the time. He makes $27 an hour as a coat check. Mm. Wow. Wow. So it's all relative. You know it's expensive to live in Switzerland. He's in Zurich. Yeah, <laughs> wow. That's wild. Um, so it, it's not relative to where you live. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's another side of this this equation. When a, as lower incomes get squeezed out, and we have this issue of where do the people who work in the, you know, the, the different hotels or whatever, you know, restaurants, retail stores, um, you know, where do they end up living, and can they, you know, what happens to your workforce? Well, maybe your workforce rage, wages rise, so then just the overall cost of living is is very expensive. I believe our state minimum wage goes up to ten dollars an hour in in next in January. Year. January, or yeah, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, listen. Okay, so I'll bite. I'll take up some of the other side of the argument for you here. Um, you got to look at evictions because you know Bob makes a point of you got this guy Party A. Sure, he agrees to sell his house. Party B um, didn't leave a lot of room for Party C. Now, Party C is this multi-generational family um, of like 10 people living in an apartment where there are 10 people, you know, in a space that's intended for less. But in order to afford it, they're all living there and having to work there and they don't want to leave. In fact, they don't really even have the resources to leave because they've been stringing along from month to month to month just barely making it so they've not saved up enough money to rent a a u-haul and and take their um, multi-generational family out of the city that they they've been in for 50 60 80 years and go what head for where um how about that guy party c just getting uh just getting evicted because a and b need to strike a deal well here's the interesting part of that san francisco has very strict rent control Sure. You don't you don't get to just evict anyone there. These people who are getting pushed out are being bought out. The you know yeah, they're coming those... along and they're saying, "Hey, you know what? You you have a lease here. You have rent control where it can't even raise." Those are being called right? stealth evictions though. But they're coming essentially... along and saying, "I'll give you 50 grand to get out of here and if they're willing to accept that, there's nothing wrong with that." They're willing to be bought out for a lump sum of money if they would prefer to stay in their rent-controlled space. They can do that. It's their choice. From the end of the recession in 2009 to 2013, the number of evictions rose more than 400%. Hang on. Don't, don't go anywhere yet. From the end of the recession... So these people survived the recession, obviously were able to pay their controlled rents on time. And now since the end of the recession, which really marked the major recovery of the housing portion where these profits are here, 400% increase in evictions. But do those evictions include people who accepted buyouts from their landlord? Sure. So there you go. That's a willing buyout. I, I wouldn't even count. That shouldn't even be part of the evictions. That should be a 
I mean, that's a that's a decision made by a renter to hey, accept a lump sum to find a new place to live. We couldn't get a phone call for somebody that was going to call and make a good point. I'm trying to take up the cross here and argue I the other you. side of this thing. And I'm, I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm not very good at it because that's not – I love arguing and everything, but I, I don't fall on that side. Well, but that's what's I, unique about San Francisco, and, and I think other big cities have this too. It's very different from what you have going on here. Here you don't have those kind of rent controls. Well, hey, listen, um, I, I know uh, – have personal and even family relationships with some pretty wealthy people, okay? So you want to know what happens, uh, you know, and – and uh, it was Amy that said her her um, co-boy nephew is making $27 an hour in Zurich. Um, housekeeper in Malibu making 100 bucks an hour. Wow. Yeah. Well, they got to drive the canyon. Got to come out from the valley. So you got to drive all the way out there. And then when you're there, now you're servicing some people's very high-end property. It's elite. Uh, they've got hundred thousand dollar bracelets laying around. You can't have anyone off the street. So, um, you don't farm that out to the lowest bidder. So it creates actually some opportunities for some people to make gobs of money serving those same needs, whether it's a coat check or the person at the coffee shop on the corner or whatever these things are, it creates a whole nother host of opportunities. So point being, it's not, this is not a simple issue. Um, it's actually a very complex one and it's going to, I'm going to venture to say that these are one of those polarizing things where you have to kind of decide, do you let the capitalist model play out? Which like Bob said is sort of, you know, whether or not the cream rises, you're just going to have, um, in any market, the willing seller with the willing buyer and based on the scarcity, hence the, the comparison to Tascadero to Cayucas, right? Um, I mean, we're not was we stopped making oceanfront property a long time ago, uh, based on the scarcity of what it is that's for sale and what the demand is for what's for sale. That's what's going to have that crazy um, difference here. So let's just say let's zoom out because you 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 all kind of accept the difference between the Palisades and Bakersfield, right? Um, it's, there's a difference in desirability. Um, one could make the same argument for California compared to who do, who, who do Dakota. I risk? Oh, who you're going to just offend all the North, <coughs> North totally Dakotans, yep. but point well taken though, right? It's, it's a scarcity thing and California. I mean, it's, some of this is just going to happen as we build out more and more and more and more. Um, but it sounds like there's some like you're saying, there's maybe real estate leads to some higher wage opportunities and and we need to look down the road a little bit at what's potentially going to be created. Or the super wealthy just have to learn to do without because they chased out all the working class. Hey, guys, we got the top <laughs> of the hour commercial break. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about the jobs report and a few other economic updates. Stick around for more Mortgage Matters. Son, your life's an open book. 
All right, guys, welcome back. Jim, you dug out a song referencing mom. I did. For Mother's Day. And if I'm... It sounds like Metallica. Metallica. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Mama Said. You're a rocker, dude. Yeah. You are. I do like it. Through yeah. and through. Mm-hmm. I mean, in... I know you like country too, if for no other reason than you're like a country DJ, but yeah, I've done you, that. Yeah. You got some rock in your core. I do actually. Yeah. ACDC Metallica. We pulled on Ozzy. Top, o- Mama, Ozzy. I'm coming home by Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was thinking of that, uh, with simple man by Skinner. Yeah. That's a, that's a good mom song probably play that because it's you know mom giving the advice to the kid mm-hmm. yeah. we might uh play uh pink floyd oh yeah mom Man, well, there's drop, a lot of options pink, drop the bomb yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if <laughs> the judds mommy he's crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm all over the board here our caller from a regular was a i can't see the screen was it bob 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 he made a comment about um Willing buyer and willing seller setting the price for real estate. Basic principle of buying and selling, right? Sure. How we determine value of real property. Got me thinking about my cousin living down in San Diego who's trying to buy a condominium down there. And this last week, uh, we did his appraisal. He agreed to buy this condominium for three hundred and eighty-seven. We had to, right? There was a lot of other people. There that was lied. A, it was a bloodbath fight. It to... was a competitive bidding situation. The yep. condominium had been on the market for less than a week. Yep. There were multiple offers. Um, it's located in Carlsbad, and and he presented the the winning offer at three hundred and eighty-seven thousand dollars. We got the appraisal back uh, on Monday, and it came in at three hundred and seventy-seven thousand dollars. I looked at it, and um, the appraiser used nine sold comps, which is well above what's normal and typical in an appraisal. Nine sold comps and two listing comps. Um, so there's nine actual transaction-completed condominiums and then two that are currently on the market. Um, three of them were just what he viewed, this appraiser viewed as the best comps. The next three were comps only from the complex in which the subject property was located. And then there were three additional comps just to help. Um, and I looked at them. I, I looked at all the, the adjustments at all. The, I mean, this appraiser worked hard. They, Sounds they like it. went above and beyond. And sure enough, after everything's adjusted out, not one of those appraised for more than $380,000. In fact, a lot of these um, were sold in the lower to mid 300s and adjusted upward because this particular condominium has a better view. It's a, you know, it's on a golf course, so it has a golf course view. And so that in itself was adding $30,000 of value to this particular unit that my cousin's trying to buy. But here we are, um, we have a willing buyer and a willing seller in a competitive market. And the appraisal doesn't justify the price. How's that even possible? Is there something broken about appraisals? Yeah, there is something a little bit broken. And then you got to remember this too. Is what side of this are you going to err on when all said and done? Because here's here's one option: is um, <clears throat> your seller sticks to his guns and said, "I understand that your appraisal came in, you know, ten thousand dollars light. That must bother you a little bit." Um, 
So your loan transaction now is going to be for a little bit less. So you can either have mortgage insurance or pay the extra amount down somewhere or other. Um, I'll have you, uh, you're, you're going to pay me because it's our deal. This is how you won. And then your cousin has that same free market ability to say, understood and agree. Here's 10 grand. Thanks for, you know, the discussion or can say crazy. I'm not willing to pay you more than what this thing averages out to be based on this neutral third party opinion. And therefore I'm going to pull the plug and walk away. Um, by the way, uh, the more unreasonable approach to me seems to be the pull the plug and walk away on the buyer side. Yeah, the the challenge with the appraisals is this, and this is, we're going to see this going forward more and more and more because um, the challenge with the appraisal is that it it represents the the sold values, and you can list a property it's always looking you want. It's always looking backwards. So in an appreciating market, it's always going to have a lag that always throws a shadow over. You know, okay, well you're the guy buying at the the most inflated Higher, the bubble's yeah. ever been. Can the bubble get bigger? Yeah, is it even a bubble at all? Uh, let's argue that. Uh, but you're, there's no doubt that you're buying it today. Um, and by the way, you, you, we've mentioned nothing about the affordability here for him. The fact that I, I almost just wanted to back right up and just say, did you just say that this dude's owning real property in the state of California mm -hmm. in the city of Carlsbad with a golf course view for less than 400 grand? That sounds pretty sweet. Um, but the, there's a lot that goes into these things. And, um, you know, I, I, I would imagine if the seller is getting good counsel, he's going to get every bit of what they agreed to in the contract. And then at the same time, if your cousin is uh, a savvy negotiator, who's employed a savvy negotiator, um, they're going to scrap it out. But let's just say this, let's just say these dudes just meet in the middle just call it that's five what grand. That's what they're trying to do. Because this now there's one more comp for the yeah. next appraisal. That's for five thousand dollars higher. But it more it also then provides the opportunity for the appraiser to do a paired analysis based on listing and appraisal and be able to note that this thing um, shows that the true market means that the buyer's willing to pay more than appraised value. And here's a definitive example of that. Um, but yeah, it's a complex issue. Yeah. There's so their original offer came with a $5,000 seller credit. So the, the proposal, which is yet to be agreed upon is, um, to bring the price down by 10 grand, but eliminate the $5,000 credit. So effectively meeting in the middle. Yeah. Oh, so we'll see how that plays out. And I'd say that's probably a pretty good compromise, right? Um, by the way, neither of them are going to um, feel particularly good about it, but that's a definition of a good compromise. Both parties feel like they gave away too much. Um, but hey, that's a real deal. And um, it's funny that you bring that up, Dan, because I, I put in my notes today is that one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk about ties right into that is that many homeowners are deciding to stay in their home now and remodel or renovate rather than um, sell and move. Um, and that has a, a marked impact on um, the housing market. And I'll tell you what it is. Um, it, it sort of stalls the valuations of properties out a little bit where um, many people believe like, you know, if you bought a house a year ago, go out, go, go out and poll in slow County, um, a hundred people that bought a house is, uh, bought a house a year ago. 
would they say that their property is worth the same? Is their property worth less or would they say their property is worth more? I'm going to go with C. Yeah, I would venture <laughs> to say that um, 100% of people are going to say they believe their property is worth more. Um, if for no other reason than they are uh, just being optimistic. That, I mean, everybody wants, this is appreciating asset, right? It's all over the headlines. Home, yeah. home prices are going up. We all know Soaring. That. Yeah. Um, and so my, my point is, though, is that um, if, if many of the people aren't selling that home for more, <laughs> then the equity really is only perceived. And the very few people that are selling are listing at those higher perceived values. And then you have trouble with the comps ultimately coming back and supporting it. Um, but, you know, just because you're you're buying. And, and so this is kind of what I wanted to talk about here is that, you know, because you're buying something that may seem like a really good deal, you could potentially have some lending trouble in there because those values can get tricky to justify. Um, but then additionally, I, I thought it was kind of a nice segue to just remind people that um, you can buy another home. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like they own one and they're not ready to buy another one, or they feel like if they're going to buy another one that you have to have a 20% down payment or something. So I just thought this is an opportunity to sort of remind everybody, uh, shatter some of those preconceived notions about what it means here. Um, so first of all, Dan, I'll just, I'll interview you on this. Uh, I already own a home uh, of which I used the first time home buyer program and made a pretty small down payment. Um, so if I want to buy another home, I mean, I can't do 3% down again, can I? Sure you can. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, and many people just don't realize that. They think that those low down payment programs are for your first time. Yeah. Are you moving into the new property? If yeah. you're moving into the new property, then all day long. If you're going to buy a new property to be an investment property, then you are required to make a larger down payment. No, I want to buy it for my house but um, that I want to live in, but I, I don't want to sell the house that I have now. I can rent it for more than my payment because I have that great 3% 30-year fix. So You can do that. You don't have to a, notify your current lender that you're making that an investment property. Yeah, but you forgot, though. I don't have that down payment. I just... I. I want to keep my house, and so I don't really have a big down. I need to make 3% down, and I'm going to have another house. You can do that. Yeah. Um, we don't talk about that stuff enough, I think, is the reality is, is that um, people can still make those, qualify for those programs and make those low down payments. You can make the decision of whether or not you want to sell or keep the home you have now. There's a couple of things about it that get kind of unique, though. For example, if you used a VA loan, um, you, you can only have one VA loan out at a time. Usually <laughs> there's some workarounds there if you're if you've been relocated for work or your family size and need has changed quite a bit. There's reasons why they might let you have two and the same rules really apply for FHA. Um, but most of the time you're supposed to sell the one or refinance the one you have. Um, but anyway, the the bigger point that I want to get out here is that um there, there are some misconceptions floating around about who might be able to qualify and, and be able to buy another home, regardless of whether you sell and regardless of whether you have that big fat down payment. Um, 
you know, you, you still can take advantage of um, options with low down payment, uh, like we said, as low as 3%. We've seen um, some people use that as a um, real estate acquisition strategy. They buy a home yeah. as their primary residence, live there for a year or two, maybe do some upgrades. Every time we start talking about this, there is a guy that we helped buy a duplex in Morro Bay in 2009 for 305000 bucks. And, I, and I'll, I'll share this with you. Um, because it ties in nicely to our conversation a minute ago. The appraisal came in light on that transaction. It came in for 300000 And we, um, the professionals in the transaction, were just scratching heads. Uh, first of all, there's not a lot of duplexes that transact in Morro Bay. So the underwriter said, we need three comps of three duplexes that closed within a mile within six months. <laughs> Dude, we got... Yeah, we can get you three comps. <laughs> they're over the course of like a year and a half, and um, they're like up to six miles away. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> the amount of duplexes that have sold out here. Um, so anyway, the appraisal came in a little bit light. Um, dude, the buyer argued with, you know, basically the seller on their side to reduce that, right? Ends up with the money um, in the pocket, right? Gets it. Ends up getting it for three oh five. Um, what a stroke of genius! Guy used an FHA loan. That thing appreciated so much, and he he bought this with the intent. I mean, who wants to? Do you want to live in a duplex? Let's be honest. If you're going to buy a house, are you going to buy a duplex? Only with the long term goal of renting it out. <laughs> buy one, live in the other. <laughs> so that's what he did. Is he bought it, inherited a tenant. Didn't even have to raise the rent. Lived in his for 12 months to fulfill his owner occupancy requirement. Moved out. That lease was worth more. Um, those two tenants more than covered the full cash flow of the property. I mean, it, it is in a positive position right out of the gate. Um, and then he was actually able to redo the loan and take some cash out to then buy a single family residence, which was always the goal. I mean, he never wanted to live in a duplex himself, but um, it's a pretty great strategy. I was looking around town the other day. There's this, there's like a triplex in a Tascadero. It's, it's a right, it's kind of near my house. Um, it's a interesting property. Again, I, I zero desire to live in it. It sort of backs up to the Rite Aid parking lot or CVS, whatever they're called now. When I was a kid, it was thrifty. So that was what that was. Um, but it's a nice looking craftsman, newish construction. I think it was built in like 07 or something. And then a duplex all on the same deal. Um, kind of a long driveway. So it's back from the street, but it looks, it looks like a fantastic property. Um, so I started running out the math on it. You want to know one of the first fun things about buying units is, uh, you can get the the normal conforming loans go to a lot higher loan amount like it I don't have it up in front of me because it's un, it's uncommon I'm not even convinced I know exactly what the numbers are but you borrow like up to 417 for a house right then you can borrow uh, I don't I don't remember what it is it's like 480 something for two units and then it's five something seven something for three and then a million something for four so you can borrow so much more under the normal loan programs if you're buying units so it is that is like a really unique opportunity The people i'm thinking of that might want to respond to a property like that is not just an investor you know you need to make 50 percent down payment or something on that as an investor but 
What if you could buy it? Um, say you're like one of these people that, that got out of college and you have a pretty high income, not a lot of down payment left, but you could qualify for a pretty good property purchase like that. You buy a property like that, rent a couple of the units out right out of the gate, you live in your one for a year to fulfill the owner occupancy requirement and then move out and rent your unit out. Um, this is almost a million dollar property that would cash flow based on rents under the right circumstances. So um, those those opportunities in Slow County are kind of few and far between. There's not a lot of two, three, fourplex properties that are listed for sale at any one time. Um, so when they come along, they they're they can be challenging because it's always an appraisal issue or whatever but uh usually you can get it done and it's a it's a unique opportunity for somebody that has a wherewithal um to see it and have a plan but also um you know having the income to be able to qualify for a loan like that if you want to go buy that property yourself just i'm not gonna live in one of them and i want to go buy it you're looking at at least 20 percent down uh, with a Fannie Mae loan, it's even, um, you know, depending on loan amount and all that kind of thing, it could even have to be a little bit more. So it's one of these things where um, the, the, the opportunity is really preserved for somebody that um, is going to be able to buy it and live in one of the units with a low down payment. Uh, if you guys want to learn more about that, give us a call. Uh, number to the company is 543-LOAN, which is 543-5626. This is the kind of stuff we do. Um, I realize when we're talking about the gentrification of San Francisco, it might even begin to wonder what the what the purpose of the show here is. So let me just remind you guys um, exactly what it is, is that we own a mortgage company and we're thrilled to be able to help you guys figure out uh, how to not only purchase, but also refinance um, really anything real estate related. Uh, it's a, it's the... I think the number one way that we accumulate wealth, right? I mean, other than inheritance, uh, it's my best chance. <laughs> I'm not planning on inheriting anything. So real estate's that avenue. Um, so yeah, it's 1024. We're going to go ahead and do a commercial break here. We do have more to talk. I wanted to talk about all that job stuff, and we haven't even got there yet. Uh, we'll give that a whack after this break. We'll talk about the jobs report for the month of April. Stick around after this short break for more Mortgage Matters. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. What a state of generosity, look what my agent got for me, just by switching to State Farm. A few hundred unexpected bucks, I couldn't ask for more, but now I've got to figure out what I should use it for. A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical, like a pet baboon with one robotic arm. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you could save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. 
through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change. Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Hi, this is Jason Grody at Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. Let me and my staff of mortgage experts help you buy your next home. We promise to close on time, on budget, with no surprises. Give Central Coast Lending a call today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. everybody welcome back again happy mother's day to all the moms out there everybody loves mom huh i hope so yeah i'm sure there's some folks that don't but Hmm. take some extreme circumstances (laughs) yeah yeah, pretty much she brought you into this world you know raised you you know yeah yeah. For the most part. My mom raised four boys. Mm-hmm. She reminded us all the time that she brought us into the world. Mm-hmm. And she could take you out if she really <laughs> yep. had to, yeah. too. I brought you into this world and I could take you out. Yeah. I got I got lippy with my mom right about that. Uh, you know. Is that about the time she said that she could take you out? <laughs> I was like, I think it was like, I guess I was like 10. Mm hmm ish because i was i was in fifth grade that's about right right i'm trying to think yeah, of that. about right mm-hmm. yeah anyway i i, I ch- mumbled something under my mouth i think a derogatory you know adjective type of word and my mom backhanded me with this righteous backhand across the side of the face. I got a little mark over here that's still in there somewhere. When I shave, wow. you could see it. Wow. Yeah. She got me good one time. But you know what? I never I never even um, tried to mumble those words again. Mm-hmm. And your dad probably said something about when he got home, too. You know what? I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. It didn't make the same impression <laughs> on me 
<laughs> if he, she had already handled it. Did, yeah, it was it was early in the morning, and that case was closed well before <laughs> breakfast. Yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah. So hey, this this last week was a good one in terms of um, you know data and, and a little chunky something something to talk about. Um, now the bureau. Well, Department of Bureaucracy, Bureau Bureaucracy, of Labor, Labor, yeah, all this yeah. fun stuff. Um, you know, obviously, this is a really important um, set of numbers that comes out typically the first Friday of the month within reason. Um, and it, it's ultimately called the, uh, you know, the employment report. And, and the goal here is to talk about the state of employment uh, as opposed to where we're typically the numbers are focusing on the unemployment numbers or the initial jobless claims. But this one gives us a read on on how many jobs we created. Uh, this is critical in our evaluation of how the economy is doing as a whole in the U.S. Um, are we adding jobs every month, growing and becoming more robust, employing the the folks that we have here, um, and, and having opportunity for anybody that does want to work. I mean, that's the, that's the point of the unemployment percentage number, right? Um, these, we're led to believe these are the, these are the, the quantifiable people of the population that are ready, willing, and able to work and, and struggling to find that job, at least when the snapshot happens. Um, so, uh, you get a little, you get a little bit of a read on it before it comes out through the ADP. Um, that's the automatic data processing. Um, and, and basically this is private payroll sector company that's able to compile a pretty good estimate at times based on, you know, how many people are on the payroll for the given month. So it always comes out the the Wednesday before the Friday report. And um, I had to say, we sort of went into the Friday jobs report looking to be a little bit disappointed if you, you know, if you put clout in that ADP number said that we only created 169,000 jobs. Um, and then additionally, sitting on the additional data for the month of March, they'd revised March's number downward, actually. Um, and and by the way, do you remember the March number? It was below 200,000. I remember that. That's all you need to know. Um, we had spent a pretty good clip, I think, 14 months of back-to-back -back months over 200,000. That's, uh, I mean, that, that's some pretty robust growth and... Uh, it's hard to argue that uh, you can't really want for much more than that. If you're always adding 200,000 jobs a month, um, you're doing pretty good. So ADP said we were going to grow by 169,000, which is if Jim had a boo button, he would have pushed it there. They revised the March number downward, um, which again, we'd push the boo button there. Um, and then on Friday, we actually got the actual uh, non-farm payroll number for the month of April. Um, the forecast by economists was for 224,000 jobs created and the unemployment rate ticking down one-tenth to 5.4. Um, the actual read was 223, so... 
That was pretty good forecasting right there, huh? They must have been looking at the weather reports this time uh, when they predicted. Um, but the but kind of the the real fly in the ointment there was that March was revised considerably lower, um, which again was already a number below two hundred thousand. The the unemployment rate indeed ticked down um, from five point five to five point four. And so with the revision, we're under 200,000 for the second month in a row. Uh, was it the weather? Did we take it into consideration? Um, but all in all, um, it's not no real wage inflation. It's, it's not as strong and, and robust as, as we really hoped it would be. Which is a, probably why we saw the stock market rally on Friday what what we've noticed of late with these jobs reports is that when yeah cuz if you found out your <clears throat> consumer base right cuz cuz stock market i need you to buy my goods and services that's that's what i care about um and if if i'm giving myself my very best chance at maximizing my profits as a a private sector stock available company um I want to know that everybody out there not only has a job, but we have a good track record of jobs and is going forward looking pretty good. I'd also like to see the unemployment rate go down, and I'd like to see wages be notably higher. Um, and in doing so, if all those things came to fruition, I would then say, let's see a stock rally. That's Let's get pumped about profits. Instead... What we see is the stocks rallying because stimulus will continue. We're going to see the Fed's not going to raise rates because the it. jobs weren't great and you know, we're going to we're going to continue to have these low costs to borrow. So when bad what, news is good yeah, news. Yeah, that's what we're in. We're in the bad news is good cycle when it comes to the stock market and that's exactly what we saw on Friday. Jobs report wasn't terrible, but it sure wasn't great. It kind of signaled to the markets that that it truly is going to be fall, if not winter, or maybe even next year until we start to see rates move higher. It could be getting pushed out a little bit further. That's funny. And then, so you ever raise your hand. This is good for radio. Raise your hand if you think the stock market's potentially overvalued. Nobody actually raised their hand. I would raise mine. Um, I, I always look at the stock market and I'm like, I don't know that I fully get it, but based on um, all of these values and and how many people I know that are investing, um, I, like, do you own Apple stock? Do you, do you know why you own Apple stock? Is that Apple stock actually worth that based on their profitability? Um, I don't know, but that's not how investors really seem to work anymore. Um, look at the, look at the stock market over the last couple of years has good news helped the stock market by and large. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Every time we see that things are getting a little bit better and we're sort of, we've stabilized real estate and we've done all these different things as we, we improve the, the overall perception of the stock market really went up well. And then lately, uh, has bad news benefited the stock market? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the good news is benefiting the stock market and the bad news is benefiting the stock market. Um, 
there's really no other news because the benign news isn't really moving anything. So in both cases, I'm like, man, those guys at the stock market sure are getting it both ways, aren't they? Um, yeah, and I mean, we saw some short term when uh, declines in the market, like when the word patient was removed. But that just goes to show you that the confidence of the the folks in those markets are, um, hey, we're only as good as uh, we're only as good as we are because of this government stimulus. And the longer that that stays around, the better spot we're going to be in. Uh, maybe that's what makes me think it's it's a, a little overvalued. Is you, you sh success of your company and the value of your stock. Um, should have very little to do with whether or not the government is essentially, you know, doling out public assistance by way of low interest rates and, you know, all the other various things they've done to boost the economy. Which is why the questions come about lately are, are, are we now addicted to these low interest rates? Do we have to have low interest rates to continue growth? Um, you know, will we return to a normal 6 to 8% mortgage interest rate market or will, for the sake of housing continuing to appreciate and continuing to move forward, will we have to keep rates below those traditionally normal numbers? I don't, I don't think our lawmakers are all particularly very smart people. Um, I saw a comedian this week who said, started playing guitar and said, I'm going to sing. I wrote this song about all the great things that um, our Congress has done for us lately. And then he stopped playing right there and set the guitar down and everybody had a good laugh. Um, when these guys are getting together to work on this kind of stuff, part of me wonders, um, like I said, I don't think these are the smartest dudes in the room. I mean, to their defense, they, they can't be educated on every topic in the entire country here. Uh, but there's only a few metrics to housing affordability. Um, so it's not hard to, to say, okay, well, we have three buttons here. We've got amount borrowed, uh, interest rate, and term. <laughs> we really need everybody to be borrowing a little bit more because unless real estate's going up in value, it seems to be free-falling because people lose faith in it, especially around the edges where it's like an ungodly amount of money. Um, the interest rate thing, man, we really monkeyed around a lot with that now, haven't we? <laughs> we spent trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, our government is running the mortgage business now for the country. Uh, we've spent so much time and regulation to try to uh, protect the consumer now. That's the current guys. Um, we know an awful lot about how the rate affects affordability. Uh nary a mention here of that whole term component of this so i i got to imagine going forward one of them is going to stumble upon that piece of brilliance and then that's probably where um so are we addicted to low interest rates you bet um keeping mm -hmm. the ever inflating loan amount and uh that need to borrow more um is just it's an insatiable need. It just continually is going up. Um, 
So we need to how how then are we going to keep borrowing more, allow interest rates to go up, and then keep the term variable the same? Uh, the answer is you you can't do that. So at some point that's going to change. But so when you ask me if we're addicted to low interest rates, it's like you bet you we are. Um, and then you're you're forcing us to this addiction into these terms the the thirty year loan, um, and that's been the case. I mean. It's more like it has nothing to do with interest rates. It's we're we're addicted to affordable payments. <laughs> we need to be able to afford it. Yeah, That's think what about it is. that. It's I could care less what the rate is. I need to be able to afford the monthly payment. It's been a few years since I went into the car dealership to do all that game, but they started in right away with, "Well, what can you afford this month? Yeah, can you pay three fifty a month?" Um, so you're, you're going to, you're going to go back into the terms for me. You're going to come back with a, ah, we got you a nine year car loan mm -hmm. at 5% interest because that was your three fifty a month. Um, in home loan world, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but it's viewed a little bit differently. Well, you can afford $2,500 a month. So you just go head on out into that market there and find yourself a house for three hundred ninety thousand. Um, that's your. That's where you. That's that's all you can get, or less, of course, unless you want to have somebody borrow with you or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. In the car world, anyone can pretty much go buy any car, and they structure the loan to meet your affordability needs. In housing, there's a lot. There's a lot of the moving parts aren't there for you. The term is a 30 year term. The rates are generally what they are. There's not a lot of variance there. So this is what you can go af afford. You can't, there's, yeah. there's not a, a big option for you as far as what you can afford. I got to say, I'd rather buy a house than a car, I think. <laughs> Cause I just don't, I do not like dealing with the, the whole sales. Thing. Yeah. But beyond the salesmanship yeah, aspect of it, it's interesting how they tailor the financing to your needs in, in auto much more mm. so that you have to tailor your, what you're buying to the financing that's yeah. available in buying a, a home. It's very, it's kind of the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, so they're in it, it, and, the, and by the way, this is why we care about the jobs report and the earnings report and these kinds of things is because <clears throat> the the smartest people in our country know that uh the overall affordability for for real estate ultimately i mean that this is where the rubber meets the road so if you're creating more jobs and you're paying those people more money that that sort of sets a stage then for goods to be able to appreciate and everything to sort of keep on keeping on um when you have jobs reports that are stagnant or wage growth that's stagnant and then on the flip side of the coin, you got real estate that's appreciating with interest rates that are lowest they've ever been. You sort of sitting on the cusp of another potential crisis there, right? Um, and would it, knowing everything you know about the the loan business, would it be difficult to come up with? Um, I, I, my mind is like I'd, I'd need some more time before I wanted to finally present this to Congress, but. Um, your loan term based on your affordability. Chop the whole thing up. You're in the Mission District. You make $60,000 a year. Uh, that unit that you need to buy is is worth X amount of dollars. And and here's your here's your deal, you know, because you got a student loan and you're just you're 
scrapping along, doing the best you can. Um, you need a 45-year term to be at a 35% debt-to-income ratio. So that's that's what you get to get. Um, next guy comes along, dude, you make 200 grand a year and you don't have a student loan, you seem to be chopping along pretty good. Um, we'll let you, at your max available is 30 years. And you, if you want to opt for less, that's all good. But you, you're not going to get to get into playing with the bigger, longer ones because you don't have a demonstrated need for that. That feels like consumer protection to me. I like that type of thinking of how to how to help people keep themselves clean, but give a, an avenue then for the people that need a little extra consideration. Um, what year was a thirty-year loan invented? Like 1933? Yeah, I was going to say 29. 37? It's a pretty good long time ago. I'll see if I can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and while you're at it, um, here's the line of thinking I'm going down. Uh, life expectancy then and then average age of retirement. If you could just grab me those three metrics in the next two minutes, that'd be great. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll get right on that. <laughs> I, I'd, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that in the 30s, people were not living on average, as long as they are today, probably by as much as 30%. But again, we need to figure that out. Um, then additionally, that average age of retirement, um, due to the shorter life expectancy and all those things, you're going to run out of uh, an ability to work at a younger age too, especially during an era back then where many of the uh, jobs that Americans bought homes with were um, were working jobs, right? You were going up ladders and under cars and working on the railroad and building skyscrapers. And this is a lot of white collar jobs or a lot of blue collar jobs. Today it seems like there's an awful lot of like services jobs. You know, um, what'd you find out? Well, I'm quoting from How Stuff Works, and it says. In the first two paragraphs, okay. You might think mortgages have been around for hundreds of years. After all, how could anyone ever afford to pay for a house outright? It was only in the 1930s, however, that mortgages actually got their start. It may surprise you to learn that banks didn't forge ahead with the new idea. Insurance companies did. These uh, daring insurance companies did not... Uh, did, did this not in the interest of making money, though... Uh, fees and interest uh, through fees and interest charges, but in the hopes of gaining ownership of properties if borrowers failed to keep up with the payments. Yeah, it wasn't until 1934 that the modern mortgages came into being. The Federal Housing Administration played a c critical role in that. You were close, 33. Said 33, Dan. Yeah, 34. Huh? Um, so there you go. <laughs> but but here's the point. I, I draw you right here into, you know, my camp where I've now encircled you and um, you've no choice but to agree with me. The framework has changed dramatically. We're living longer. We're working longer. Um, our our family needs are even different. But you could take this other argument, too. You know, in the 30s, we houses... You build houses in in the you know seventeen hundreds eighteen hundreds they they hit this point. I mean, paint wasn't even very good, right? They hit this point where they just deteriorated, and you end up having to fix them so much that you just build a new one, use what you can out of the old one, but you just 
And now look today. You could drive in San Luis today. And, I mean, these guys, like we had a dude on the radio show that makes a living off of lifting houses. Uh, you lift them up to redo all of the plumbing and put in the fancy electrical and redo the entire foundation to bring it all up to all the niceties of the modern house because it's still more economically feasible than just dozing it and building a new house, partially because of government. But point being, there's so many reasons why it would just make sense that people could borrow money for longer than 30 years today. What if it, you got to save a down payment. Um, I, the average age uh, for a first-time homebuyer is now like 34 years old in the country. Um, and that's cause you got to save for down payments. So then if you get a 30 year loan, you could be done, um, you know, at 64 years old, provided that you never refied or anything like that. Um, but look at, uh, what if you, you know, at 64 though, many people are still working and doing great playing tennis five times a week, you know, all these kind of things is you're not ready for the glue factory at 64 anymore. So, um, and, and then the flip side of the coin is, would the median age of the first-time home buyer drop if those guys could afford the payment because of the longer term? So you might be able to give a bunch of 25-year-olds then a 40-year loan. They're going to pay off at the same time at 65, but they're going to benefit from a lower affordability throughout. Um you do need to qualify something on this, Jason. Actually, what I just said too. Um, uh, back in the 1934, the FHA um, started by issuing only 15 year loans, but then eventually that moved out into 30 years. So it could be that. Yeah, well, that was and that's, later. That's a little bit limited to FHA. What was going on prior to the, you know, in 29 was where this stuff really started to get legs. But what was going on was it was adjustable rate loans. And most importantly, the loans were um, secured by your property, but ultimately had a call on them at any time the bank could call the note due. So you might take a loan out against your house, you know, because you bought it or you refinanced it or for business or whatever. Um, if the bank had an asset problem, they could just call you up and say, hey, Jim, uh, we need that 200 grand back. Or, you know, maybe back then it was like three grand. Uh, but if you don't have it, then they could take the family farm mm -hmm. and sell it out from under you. Mm -hmm. um, but then additionally, most of the loans were adjustable rate in nature. I mean, we came up with the 30-year fixed rate mortgage mm -hmm. around that time. Um, and the, the, the goal there was in creating Fannie Mae was to create a market where people could make loans um, based on a common criteria so that banks could buy and sell and trade these loans out with each other mm -hmm. so that if they found themselves in a cash problem, they don't need to ruin your life. They could just... There might be a, a bank in the market that had a, an ability to maybe even a need to buy uh, a $5,000 loan. So, again, instead of ruining your life, they could sell your loan to another company. And because of that, Fannie Mae um, being that commonality of the way that the loan was made and underwritten and, the, you know, the the methodation of, of reviewing the, the appraisal and, and the different things at that time um, – 
that that's where it came from. Uh, and so again, rather than get lost in the technicality of it, the point is is that it's an old practice. Well, you also if, have to look at the again what people were making back then. Sure. Too, possibly. I mean, it's yeah. all the same. It's all and relative. It, it, like we were talking about in the first hour, my family still has a house and that is in the family that they bought in 1950 for $5,000. Yeah. You know, a few minutes ago, you made the comment that you'd rather buy a house than a car. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was just thinking about that uh, from a slightly different angle is uh, today we got people willing to buy forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar cars, which is kind of mind blowing to me. Um, I mean, I I do I understand it. It's a complex thing. I think at the same time, it's pretty simple. But we got people spending way too much money on automobiles, and um, all the while the home ownership rate is slipping. So. Um, you know, I, I personally think I'd like to see a little bit of, uh, a little bit of interest put in figuring out whether or not there's an opportunity to, to find a different kind of term for a loan than just the 30 year term. Um, gosh, that about rounds that out, huh? Yeah, it does. But that it's it's an important discussion. I, I hope that that type of talk comes about when we start talking about what to do with Fannie and Freddie. I, I hope that this idea of loan term as an opportunity to create affordability really um, comes to the forefront of the conversation. Because I think it's important. I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of the points you made. You know, life expectancy, time you're working, the, the duration of the home. All those reasons lead us down this path to a longer term loan, a 50, 40, 45. I don't think it should be limited to anyone. I think anyone should be able to access that. Um, it's a great stepping stone for someone to buy their first home, have it be affordable, build some equity through paying down principal or making the home better, and then they can sell that home, buy a new one, I and guess it creates the only, opportunity. I guess the only reason why I think that you kind of got to give protect people from themselves, because think about this today the majority of people take the maximum term sure but i mean it, this is where so then you what keeps you from bumping into the same problem though you you roll out the 50-year loan and then five years later 95 percent of people have those so real estate is worth more because of the new affordability and now you bumped all the way up into it again where you can't justify doing a 60 or 70 year loan so you've, you've exhausted yourself again you know, another generation would have made a grip of money, but you you bump you have the same problem again. I think yeah, you but to... you've greatly increased the home ownership, um, so there's the need isn't going to be as great as it is now. Um, I think, I, I don't know. I I think those it, it's going to put some downward pressure potentially on rents because there's going to be more people able to buy homes. So then those landlords are going to have to and then it becomes decide. affordable for other people to rent. I mean, there's. I think there's some good that comes out of it. And, and again, it's hard to know all the potential outcomes until you actually go down that path. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's an issue. It's something that people are rallying governments around. So it's, it's obviously a big concern for a, a huge demographic of people. And just to kind of put some numbers to it, here locally we had some data come out about the median cost of homes. It's up again. Median, no way. Median cost of housing for San Luis Obispo County is just shy of four hundred and eighty-six thousand dollars. 
Uh, it's a four and a half percent gain from one year ago. Um, total number of homes sold in March was up uh, nearly 25%. So activity is really booming right now. And, um, you know, it's it, it just shows that we're in this appreciating market with a lot of demand for housing. And um, there's a very limited segment of the population that can afford to buy these homes. And so affordability is a big topic right now. It's a national issue, not just a California issue, not just a San Luis Obispo County issue. It's everywhere. And it's something that needs to, uh, the people who we vote into office need to talk about this issue um, on a national level. And I think it starts with little shows like this, starting this conversation with households out there like you. And um, let's, let's get a solution. Let's figure out how to make things affordable for people. Yeah, and you know, I as we were talking all this out, I was reminded again that when I qualify first-time home buyers right now, you know, we always look at the different loan programs for them. You can do a, a USDA loan around the county here for zero down. It's also got a great interest rate and a really low mortgage insurance cost. You can do a conventional loan. You can do an FHA loan. The payments on, like if you compare a USDA loan with no down payment, what the monthly nut is to buy a $300,000 house versus an FHA loan, what the monthly payment is to buy a $300,000 house. That makes such a big difference in payment. Um, and so I, it just reminded me again that sometimes affordability is, is kind of crafted by the program that you get into. Uh, if you guys are an interest in buying a home or know somebody that may want to, um, have them give us a call. We can look at the different loan programs and help them figure out affordability, maybe craft a game plan about what the best way to, to buy something is going to be. Uh, and then additionally, uh, the other thing is if you have a home today, give us a call and make sure that you're in the right, um, that you're in the right loan product for yourself and your goals, that you have the correct interest rate, uh, that you're not paying mortgage insurance when you don't need to be paying mortgage insurance. Uh, I always give this shout out. You know, I tell everybody, if you have mortgage insurance today, call me tomorrow. Um, I want to, number one, just tell you how to get rid of the mortgage insurance you have. If it's if it's been long enough and it's possible, it's free. I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll give you my time to help you figure out how to make that change for yourself. And then otherwise, if not, you know, we can look at doing a new loan. So... Those are the reasons why you guys should write down this number and call us. It's 543-5626. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll be back next week with another live episode of Mortgage Matters.